Carly Velucci, what is your favorite game? My favorite game is Silent Hill 2. weird because you know most people say that they grew up with games and i didn't um like i had like a ps2 and a game boy when i was younger but my parents didn't really know anything about games so they didn't really get me any i had like maybe i think i had kingdom hearts grand theft Auto three and then like some really terrible mary kate and ashley and sabrina the teenage witch games and that was about it oh god Um, i'm so sorry (laughs) They didn't know. I didn't know any better. It's it's excusable in a way. <laughs> um, so and I like didn't really have any friends that were into games either. So I didn't like have a community or anything to be like, Carly, you should play this. Carly, you should play that. Um, and that didn't really happen until like college when I started playing games, and it was kind of just being exposed to people who had played games, and they'd be like, Oh, Carly, you haven't played. You know, Resident Evil 4, what is wrong with you? Carly, you haven't played Silent Hill 2, what is wrong with you? Um, so I had a lot of help um, in like the first three years of college. Just a lot of people just throwing games at me, letting me borrow their consoles, just, you know, being excited that, you know, th- they got to share their favorite games with me. And honestly, like the, I think the game that solidified my <laughs> new budding interest was Silent Hill 2, which is why it's... And one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite games. Um, but it's it's also just because, like, I can get into this later. But it just kind of changed the way I looked at games and changed my perception of them and just, like, really got me into thinking about, like, how the games are made and just more, com- like, more complexity in, you know, how these games work and just, like, yeah, just kind of opened my eyes. And then I just kind of went on a a little bit of a binge just trying to get every game I could get my hands on buying all the used games I could um, on borrowed consoles. Um, And right now it's still kind of a, uh, a race to catch up, but also play all the new games. So there are a lot of games that are missing in my lexicon. Um, Like for example, I didn't really play that many Nintendo games when I was a kid. Um, I think I played like Mario Kart and that was about it. Um, I didn't really play like any of the, you know, the really popular franchises like Middle Gear, Solid, you know, just came out their new game and I have never played any of them. So I can't, I don't share the same excitement as everyone else. Um, so it's given me a very unique perspective, but it's also um, putting me in a very interesting position where I feel like I have to play all the old games and the new ones. <laughs> no, that, that's that's actually quite... Uh... Fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> like I, I, I was never really into Nintendo myself as a as a young kid. I it was more PlayStation really, uh, and if anything, yeah, a bit, a bit of a Sega boy as well because of my brother who really got me into games in the mid nineties. Um, mm-hmm. He was playing uh, Sega Saturn, um, 
when he was playing stuff like Sega, Sega Rally, the FIFA games that were coming out at that time, or the football games that were coming out at that time. I don't know if they were necessarily FIFA, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting uh, the timeline you got in the games because like everyone who's come on here, like they've like it's been around the eighties, nineties, something like that. There, like uh, it's safe to say that your timeline would start around the early two thousands, mid mid two thousands, otherwise. Yeah, like two thousand, like two thousand eight, a little. Like, 2007, a little bit before that, but mostly it was, like, yeah, like, 2008. So, like, one of the first games I ever completed was, like, Bioshock. Because that had just came out come out at the time, or not too long before that. Ah, um, yeah, that would have yeah. been, been a year or so, yeah. Yeah, so I, like, I, ba- I got into games, basically, as that was happening. You're a Boston native, right? Yeah. And, uh, well, not a native, but well, I've been here for a while, like, uh, seven, eight years. Oh, okay. They're like, there's plenty of um, Boston dev talent in the in the city, and it was like this harmonics, and there, mm-hmm. and there and there was and there is or was what was um, Irrational as well, who made yeah. Bioshock. So like, there's plenty plenty of dev talent there, anyways. Yeah, that's kind of one of the reasons why I started writing about games was because there is such a very um, not it's not a large dev community, but it's a very interesting and varied dev community. So I became I kind of hooked on to that. And that's how I got interested in like writing about games more than just playing them. So with that in mind, like I asked how you first got into the industry side of things, though. It was it was kind of that, but it was it was um I hadn't because I was in school for journalism. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to do any reporting or writing. Um, but at an internship I had, they were looking for you know just a whole bunch of different writing, and I was like, well, there's some devs that are like game devs that are around here that nobody really talks about maybe i should write about those so i started writing about you know i i I think like i'm trying to think of who the first the first indie studio i talked to i can't i think it might have been subatomic who does field runners um they're 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 in boston and and not too long after that there was the boston festival for indie games i went there and met a lot of of the other like small independent studios and game makers. Um, and so I kind of became a little embroiled in the bo- local development community. Um, and it kind of, so I kind of started like, you know, reviewing some of the local indie games, talking with some of the devs, you know, just getting more and more into games as an industry. So it kind of sort of happened just by accident, just kind of being like, well, there's this, there's this kind of section of Boston that nobody's ever really reported on. Let's report on that. Um, and it kind of became my beat um, at that internship. Um, but of course it was an internship, didn't pay. So I went looking for other more paid uh, opportunities. And that's how I started writing for more outlets. Um, just kind of pitching my way, you know, from, you know, really small outlets to bigger outlets and just like, yeah. And, as I, you know, learn more about games, it's kind of a, uh, kind of been uh, an exponentially more complex industry to talk about because, you know, as my knowledge grows, the more things I have to write about and the more I look back at my old writing and see how, you know, naive it is. Because um, I, I didn't have, like, the the game's background to pull upon in a lot of ways. So my writing definitely is a lot different. Um, than it is now, where I have more of a background and more of a knowledge of the history of games. Because I think, I think games culture and history is very important to how we think about games now. So I've been trying really hard to catch up 
because of that. Um, so my writing has changed and like, you know, things I cover have changed um, as I learn more. But essentially I started because I realized there was a sector, you know, of the city that nobody was talking about. And as I got into those, I learned more. So it was kind of a, like as the place I was interning, you know, learn more about games. I also learned more about games. So it was kind of a simultaneous uh, learning experience for a bunch of people. <laughs> Do you think that kind of late start in writing compared to, let's say, most other people who's been on the show? Like, did that kind, did that actually help you, or do you think, or was it rather of a hindrance? Um, I feel like it's more of a hindrance. Although most people tell me that it's not. It's just more me feeling slightly insecure about. Well, I haven't really played any of the Super Mario Brothers games. I haven't played Sonic. I haven't played, you know, all these other games. And it's hard to catch up with games, especially because most games are like you need the console to play it. Mm. And most consoles are like I'm poor. <laughs> I can't afford all the consoles, um, especially even like used ones. So it's definitely been like, well, I would love to try out this game that everyone talks about, but I can't because. I need, you know, you know, an original PlayStation or a Nintendo 64, and that would require me buying them, and then buying the used games. So it's kind. Of, so it's definitely financial reasons that have kept me a little bit. What I feel stunted, although that's just me talking. I know that's really not as much of a hindrance as I think it is, because I think at the very least I don't have a certain nostalgia that other people have which means I can look at certain things in a different light. Like I can definitely look at, you know, Pokemon games in a different light because I only really played Pokemon Blue as a kid and that was it. Um, so I don't have like a connection, but that also means I can explore for the first time, which is, I think, which I think is just as good. Let's move on to your favorite game then, Silent Hill 2. Um, like you've, you mentioned uh, beforehand uh, like you were playing Resident Evil 4, so it's like safe to say you were playing horror games before Silent Hill 2. Like you were playing Resident Evil 4 and Silent Hill 2 in college, but like, were you much of a horror fan uh, beforehand? Oh yeah. Um, I, you see, I grew up in the 90s, so I had a lot of like the, um, you know, the TV shows, the horror TV shows for kids. Mm. Like the Goosebumps and the Are You Afraid of the Darks, that really kind of hooked me really young. So when I'm, you see me like being, you know, five, six years old and, you know, watching like all these like vampire stories and ghost stories. And I loved horror books. There were a bunch of horror books for kids, like the um, the scary stories to tell in the dark with the terrible, horrible drawings um, in them. I had like a couple of those and this, they were so scary, but like even more so when I was like, you know, six or seven and still scared of the monster that was under my bed. But I don't know. There's something alluring about, you know, those, those horror tropes and those stories. Like I loved ghosts. I loved the idea of, you know, witches and psychics. I got into that stuff more in a metaphysical sense in a, when I was about 10 or 11. Um, and like when I was, it's funny when I was, I can't think about eight or nine. I saw Ghostbusters for the first time and I was like, mom, dad, I really want to hunt ghosts. And they got me like 
a really stupid like ghost hunting guide from the bookstore, but it was like for kids. But it was just I, I found it a couple weeks ago when I was going through my bookshelf at home, and it's just oh, it's so corny and ridiculous. But it's just kind of like it reminded me that like you know when I was a kid, I just I love the idea that ghosts existed and that other stuff like you know witches and vampires and all stuff that could exist outside. So even if like horror was too terrifying for me, I still latched onto it in a in a in a way that was like kind of more out of curiosity. And so of course as I got older, I watched more horror movies, catching up on like slasher films and you know, when I was around fifteen or sixteen I started watching more like kind of like old classic silent uh horror mo- films and like B movie films from like the fifties and the forties. Um and like it, it's weird now because I do, I'm not as terrified as I used to be because I've seen so much horror that it's almost kind of like I've become desensitized to it a little. Like there was there was one time when I was with some friends, we went to like a haunted house and I was basically just like going into every room and pointing out like, okay, in about five seconds, a guy's going to pop up behind there. And then that, that dummy is actually alive. And then we're going to go down here and it's going to be scary because there's going to be a guy who's going to reach out from you underneath the door. Just like basically predicting everything that was happening because I've seen so many horror films and it's all kind of like, they all kind of go by beats. Um, but it was, so it kind of seemed um, natural that I would hook onto games because like when I played Silent Hill 2 for the first time, I was like the first time in a really long time that I felt like legitimately like terrified and horrified at something I was, you know, experiencing, whether it was like, you know, a book or a movie or a TV show or whatever. Um, So I started playing, you know, more horror games after that. And it's, there's something so different about playing horror games versus playing, like watching a horror movie, but they're very similar in a lot of ways. And they just, and like games just seemed kind of like an extension for me of that curiosity I had about, you know, do ghosts exist? You know, do vampires exist? And it just kind of, it's so it kind of, it's kind of like a natural progression for me. And it was kind of a, you know, not a very surprising thing that nowadays I'm very much into, you know, horror as a genre. What was it like kind of getting into, like you mentioned, like as you were getting older, you were getting more and more into the heavier stuff. Cause obviously as a kid, you were, you were you're getting into the, the more usual tropes of ghosts and witches and all that there. Like but what was what was that like starting to get into more of the heavier stuff, like the psychological aspect of the genre? Because that's what pretty much Silent Hill Two is. Yeah, like there's obviously a huge difference between like you know, you have like maybe an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode where, you know, you go to a haunted house and you meet a ghost kid and you find out why the ghost kid died and then you free the ghost kid. And it's they're very simple stories, um, but terrifying for children. Um, but then you, later you have certain things like, um, like, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street, for instance, to, cause I've been thinking a lot about that lately because of Wes Craven's death. And also because like two days before he died, we wa- I watched it again. Um, but it's, def- there's definitely something underneath just, Ooh, there's a scary guy in your head. It's, there's an innate fear there with, about dreams and about like, you know, basically your own mind kind of turning against you. So there, when I started like seeing that there are these like different complexities in horror, it became more interesting because horror as a genre is always more about, not necessarily about like the monsters, but about what the monsters mean. So it's definitely more like, you know, you know, you have um, 
like say you have like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, for instance, which is a, you know, about pod people. But, you know, in in the 50s, when the book was like really popular, and when the movie came out, it was about, you know, communism. Um, and, you know, and then you have like Godzilla and like the kaiju movies, which are about fears of nu- nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons and, you know, science and technology. So there's always like some kind of historical and cultural aspect that is part of a good horror piece. And there's some, there's usually something there that kind of makes it like, well, why is this terrifying? Why is, you know, you know, why is, why is Freddy Krueger so terrifying? It's because, you know, he's not just a monster. He's a monster that lives in your head and you can't fight what's in your head. You know, you have, you have nightmares all the time. Everyone has nightmares all the time, but what if those nightmares killed you? Especially when you find out that Wes Craven was inspired because people were dying in their sleep and that's, just know. <laughs> um, so I like the idea that like, you know, the more mature horror becomes, the more it becomes less about like, Ooh, this is a spooky ghost. And it's more about, well, what does this ghost mean? And why are these people interacting with the ghost in a certain way? And, you know, it's basically, it becomes way more and it's more interesting. It's more um, interesting for like analysis purposes, because, you know, as a critic, I love, reading way too much into stuff um so it's kind of so kind of just plays on that a lot so it makes it for me it makes a lot of sense that you know i would be really into like something like silent hill 2 because it's so much more than you know a typical horror monster game Mm, the typical bad numbers horror game essentially or yeah like a typical you know silent hill (laughs) 1 like have you played silent hill 1 at all yeah i've played um I played one, two, and three. I haven't played four. Um, I played Downpour. Um, I haven't played it specifically, but I've seen Homecoming played. So I've, I've seen, I've experienced, I should say, a bunch of them. What about what about PT? Have you played or seen any of PT? Yes, I've. Uh, I I don't have a PS4, so I couldn't play PT, but I've seen many, many people play. <laughs> um, and. Oh, yeah, I was really excited for Silent Hills, and then it got cancelled, and I was very upset. <laughs> for lot, obvious reasons. A lot of people were upset, it's safe to say. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm not... I wasn't the only one. It's like, yeah, it's like Silent Hill is a franchise that, you know, I have such a contentious relationship with, as do a lot of people, but it means so much to me, and has so much potential to be so interesting. Like, Downpour seemed like it kind of was, like, kind of a start in the right direction, to be honest. And then, you know, Silent Hills had Guillermo del Toro attached, and he's one of my favorite creators right now of anything. And so it was just, yeah, it was, a, it was a huge disappointment. Especially considering when PT, like like you said, it had del Toro, like, you know, one of the masters of horror, and, and Kojima, who is, for me, like, easily one of the best developers who can break the fourth wall of games, basically. Yeah, like, I haven't played any of the Metal Gear Solids, but I can understand why they're so important for gaming and you know, even just like not having played them, I still find some aspects of the, them very fascinating. What, what, what were your initial impressions of Silent Hill 1, going back to that though? Um, well, I actually played Silent Hill 2 first, oh, yeah. but Silent Hill 1, you know, I played it, see, I think my friends and I would play 2 and then 3 and then 1, um, which is weird, I, I understand, but <laughs> 1 is like, it's really, it, 1 is not a terrible game at all, it just kind of doesn't hold up very well. Um, but it's still kind of pretty creepy, and you can definitely see how later games have drawn from it in a lot of ways. So, mm. like, 
Yeah, it's it's very like it's very kind of like a messy, rough game, but I, I don't it's that's not really so much of a problem considering you know when it was made and considering it was the first of a series and con- but but then you look at how much they improved upon that formula mm. and you and you realize that like all the basics were there already. Mm. Like like it's it it was dated basically. Yeah, it's dated. I, I mean, I was if I had played it, you know, in ninety, I don't know, seven, whenever it came out. It, I would have a completely different opinion of it, but I played it in, you know, 2009. Mm. So I'm like, oh, man, Harry looks terrible. Why don't these people move? Why do these people move so weirdly? Why does it keep running into walls? These controllers don't make any sense. Um, but this, I think the story is really interesting, even if it is kind of confusing and a little dense with all the cult stuff. That's the same with Silent Hill 3, too. I mean, like, like I have the same issue with... Um... The original Metal Gear Solid, like, if I had played it the year it came out, I think it was 98, 99 or something, I would have a completely different opinion of it, but because I only played it in 2009, and I only got into the series of MGS2 the year it came out in Europe, which was 2002, I want to say, um, mm-hmm. like, because I played MGS1 so late for the first time, and finished it for the first time so late, I only finished it for the second time just last month as of recording this, so... Okay. Like, if 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 I had played it around the time of its release, then I probably would have a different opinion of it. And and it's I can never mind. Uh, we're kind of getting off point here. What I'm trying <laughs> to tell, but I can easily see your point about uh, Silent Hill and uh, how did it that is. But at the same time, respecting aspects of it even now, so I can I can totally definitely see that. Um. So, Silent Hill 2, it has... Team Silent have said, like, said at the time that, that there was a heavy story like influence from mm-hmm. Tostovsky's Crime and Punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, like, like, have you read Crime and Punishment at all? I haven't. Um, I, I, know, I know enough about it because I was an, an English literature major, but uh, yeah, I haven't read it. Uh, okay, fair enough. Um, but as, as well as um, Crime and Punishment, like they said as well... An art style influence from David Lynch, David Fincher, mm-hmm. and Hitchcock, mm-hmm. and these kind of all uh, big, this kind of mashup of well-known influences, like did, that 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 obviously helped the game, clearly. Yes. How would you say like those would have helped the game? Like, in what way would you say? Well, I mean, it's impossible to have anything that's not influenced by something else at this point. Mm. Um, and I think they were just drawing on things that, you know, inspired them. Like I find David Lynch very kind of interesting from an artistic perspective and a creative perspective. Like I love, 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 love Twin Peaks. Um, and there's obviously a whole, there's a, there's a whole theme there surrounding like the idea of a small town that runs throughout all the Silent Hill games that is very reminiscent of, you know, Twin Peaks and other David Lynch, uh, movies like blue velvet um which all kind of have this like like surround this idea of like the small town with a dark underbelly um mm. which is another one of my favorite like themes and motifs in literature and media and anything um but i think a lot of it has to do with just you know like i don't like i don't know you know 100 percent the history of silent hill 2 i don't know like where they came up with the story um but you know, you can obviously see that they were inspired by other things, 
and they took those things, kind of created their own thing out of them. And like, there are so many things now that I compare to Silent Hill 2 on its own, even if Silent Hill 2 is, you know, based, like inspired by other things. So it's kind of like, oh, you can say that, you know, Silent Hill 2 um, takes some inspiration from, you know, David Lynch, but then you can say other things take took inspiration from Silent Hill 2. Um, so, so I think they just, you know, kind of took what they knew and imp- like either improved on, you know, what they knew already or combined it with something else to make, you know, something else completely. Um, yeah, and that, it's its own unique thing. Like, I, like I, sometimes I read stories that have nothing to do with games and I call them Silent Hill 2-esque. Like, it's become, like, for me in my head, it's become its own, like, definitive term that describes a certain kind of story. Like, Silent Hill-esque has kind of become its own influence in a way. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's become, it's gone up there with, like, you know, I'm inspired by Alfred Hitchcock. I'm inspired by, you know, Wes Craven. I'm inspired by David Lynch. It's like, I'm inspired by Silent Hill. Hmm. That's, that's an that's a interesting way to put things. I, I, I like that answer. Mm-hmm. Um... So let, let me touch upon then uh, perhaps the, the two main uh, characters of the game, uh, James and uh, Mary, or Maria even. Um, so, like, how, how were your feelings of James as a main character then? Uh, I love James Sunderland. I realize he's not he's not perfect, um, obviously, because he's a terrible person. Um, <laughs> he's a very terrible person. Though more so than some other people, okay. but I like him as a Silent Hill protagonist because he adds to this idea of the uncanniness of Silent Hill. Um, like when I first played Silent Hill Two, or like any of the other Silent Hills, but especially in Silent Hill Two, people don't act normally. They don't act like the way no- people normally would when confronted with like you know a creature that looks like it's stuck in a straitjacket or you know a mannequin with four legs. Or, you know, it's just like, you know, when he, he, he looks at the hole in the wall and he's like, I'm going to stick my hand in that. And, or like, there's a hole in the floor. I'm going to jump down it. And he doesn't act like a normal person acts. Um, nobody in the game does. But I think that adds a lot to the kind of surreal nature of the game itself and just how it, it's supposed to look like it's our world, but it's not. So, like, I I didn't like it at first because it was very kind of jarring, but it, now I kind of appreciate it as almost, I don't know if it was intentional or not. It could just be a, uh, like, a localization or, you know, time issue. But I, but I do think that, like, it adds to this sense that the game is taking place in a world that is very much like our own, but isn't. And so it it basically it almost adds to the power of the ending. Compared to like other other protagonists in the series from the games you've played, like Harry, James, and uh, Heller, like what what child of the three would you prefer? Like James, I would say clearly. Yes and no. I mean, I I like James as a protagonist in the Silent Hill two universe, but say if I was like stuck in a horror game, I would want Heather. She's way more she's way more interesting from a personality standpoint. Um, and just how she reacts. She acts, she reacts to things in a more appropriate way than James does. Um, so, but I think James works as a protagonist in the Silent Hill 2 game specifically because one of the game's about him. And two, he works definitely more like a blank slate without, you know, erasing a character too much. Like, you can have, like, a blank slate, like, you know, Gordon Freeman. But he's, I think, for me, he's too much of a blank slate. 
while while James is like he has just enough character traits and personality to add to make to make the game work, but it's not too much that you're like this is James's story, you know. Like Silent Hill Three is Heather's, like it's Heather's game completely. Um, Silent Hill Two, he has James, but you also got Mary slash Maria and Angela and like all these other characters that like kind of all like add up to the story together. So I think he's just right. What about um, Maria slash Mary? I'm like, what were your feelings of uh, her and like? I well, it was really funny the first time I played Silent Hill Two. I didn't catch the fact that they were like they look so much alike because honestly, for me, it was it's a graphics thing. Um, like because like the facial like faces tend to look very similar. So I, I didn't really like think about it too much as like they were supposed to be the same. But as the story went on, you like, it's like the sense of dread that just, just grows in your stomach. Well, especially like the more Maria shows up and the more like weirdly she acts and how she's like sort of some of Mary crosses over into Maria and uh, just that scene where she's talking to James in the jail cell is one of the, like, I, like, my heart stopped in, like, during that scene. So, and I think, yeah, so I think that, like, yeah, she's a character, like, I don't even know if you can call her a character because she's many characters in a way. Um, and she can change depending on, you know, what ending you're going for and how you play the game and how you see James. Like, because she's completely different on the first playthrough than when you know James is deal on the second playthrough, you know? Oh yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, Maria slash Mary's like, she's such an interesting foil, um, for James, especially when she becomes Maria. Um, and it really builds up this, this like idea of sex and tension and like, you know, that, that basically pervades the game throughout. So I, I think she like, her yeah, her dialogue's a little clunky sometimes, um, but I think that's to do more with like dubbing and like translation more than anything else. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, I think that you know Maria Maria slash Mary is very, she's almost like the villain, but she's not. So she's very complex. Like did, when you first played it, like did you catch on almost immediately that Maria was kind of more of a sexually provocative kind of character in a way? Yeah, like she's it's. Kind of, um, it's kind of drilled into your head when you first meet her that she's supposed to be, like, kind of, like, the sultry, um, like, woman. Like, she's got, like, the, um, like, the printed skirt and the high boots, and she's, like, flirting with James the moment she meets him, even though he's, like, Mary, and she's, like, no, I'm Maria, and she's, like, flirting with him, and it's, it's kind of, like, almost uncomfortable in, in how, like, sexual she's meant to be especially towards James. Um, it's almost like over time she becomes less sexual as like, you know, the more you kind of learn to understand James as a character, um, she becomes a little less sexual. I'm not sure if it's like the writing or if it's just because you become more used to it or just like, well, obviously she's this sexual because James is, you know, really starved for attention. Um, but yeah, so it was pretty obvious from the beginning that she was supposed to be a very sexual character. Going going back to James, um, like I I want I want to touch upon Pyramid Head in a second because like you know Pyramid Head is 
perhaps it's pyramid uh, head. It's pyramid head, exactly. <laughs> but I was watching um, uh, a video just before we were just uh, chatting, and um, and to kind of paraphrase the video, like James is emotionally inept right now uh, as you start selling to because obviously he's lost Mary, like she's gone, and now and anything that. And anything that James wants, he just kind of wants it without any emotions to it. And that, like, being... Sex is one aspect to it, so to speak. But, like, also other aspects of it as well. Um, I'm trying to kind of remember what what was said in that video. But, like, how was that kind of relationship between James and Maria and Mary, so to speak, in the game? Like, how, how was that? for you like like how did you find it i mean it's very toxic um especially when you you know as you go along like in the beginning you're like it almost don't really think about it as a relationship in the beginning because you you're under the let's say you go into the game not knowing about the end are we doing spoilers oh yeah we trying to avoid them oh yeah if if you want to go for spoilers go for it seriously we can just put i can just put it on the right in in the post just go for spoilers okay um it's all on deck okay cool um i wasn't sure um so what was i saying so when in the beginning when you don't you don't know anything so you go in and you're like oh my wife is dead um but i get a creepy letter from her from silent hill so and you know that she's dead and you're under the impression that this town is creepy because it's Silent Hill and there's a, there's a certain kind of feeling you get behind the name. Even if you don't know too much about the games, you know Silent Hill is a terrifying kind of Stephen King-esque town that's alive in its own way. Um, so it's almost kind of a non-relationship because Mary doesn't exist. Um, and then Maria comes in and something's up. You know something's really off. You're not quite sure what it is yet. So you're kind of still like looking at it from a distance in a way. Like you don't, you don't want her to follow you, but she does. Um, You don't want to protect her, but you do. Um, And then you leave her in a room and you're just like, this seems like a terrible idea, but okay, I'm going to leave you in a room now. Um, And it's, so it's, um, it's definitely more interesting on the first playthrough, but because when, when you find out that, you know, it was, you know, James who killed his wife, and everything he had remembered was wrong about her death. Then it takes on this completely different idea where like, why did you see this as a non-relationship? If he, you know, if, if this whole thing was, you know, his fault and it's kind of almost like, like you say, like how James is so social, um, emotionally inept. Um, and then you realize that like, it's almost like he's pushing away those emotions for a reason. Um, and when you think about the fact that like she was sick for a long time um, and he was trying to cope with it in his own way and everything that he does kind of makes more sense. But then you also don't want to really sympathize with James because he killed his wife. Um, so it's very complex. And it's like you realize that as much as Mary's kind of portrayed as like this sweet, innocent, almost kind of chaste, you know, creature compared to you know, Maria or what James wants. Um, but then, but you know, over time it becomes more dangerous and more, it's definitely a very toxic relationship. Like you don't get that on first playthrough because of how kind of like dead inside James is. But 
over time you realize just how like horrifying it actually all is. And it's not even, doesn't even have anything to do with like monsters or creepy fog or anything. It just has to do with, you know, James's, you know, frustrations and his fears. There's a kind of another aspect to the relationship that I actually kind of found on the dev side, at least anyways, um, in terms of influence, um, that, I'm, that I kind of want to bring up. Um, according to the first, uh, this is a quote from the first scenario, I think, um, I'm going through a bit of it, bit of it now, but there was, um, for the first scenario run through of the game, um, the, in the original scenario, even, like, Maria's other personality, Mary, like, it was a reference to Jack the Ripper, and actually Mary Jane Kelly, the last victim of Jack the Ripper, while James mm. was Joseph, to who was one of the suspects, being Jack the Ripper. Like, like what, what do you think about that? Is that an apt comparison? And this is, like, something that, like, the dev said, or is it... This is, this, this is apparently um, from the original scenario. I mean, it definitely, like, it's kind of a, like, I didn't really get that, but that's because it's a very, it's very much ingrained in the culture of Jack the Ripper. Um, so, so, but I think it makes sense um, when you think about, you know, obviously we don't know 100% what Jack the Ripper's motivations were for killing all the, all the women, but, you know, if you talk about it, you say, take James, put him in, like, that role, for instance, and it becomes all about sexual frustration, then it kind of adds a bit to, it adds a bit of like monstrosity and dangerousness to James as a character. Like, cause you can read it as like, well, you know, cope, like dealing with his wife's illness was just as taxing on him as it was for her. But at the same time, he did kill her and that's a terrible thing. And he should not be treated with any sort of respect because he did an awful terrible thing um and that's why he's put getting put through hell um literally and metaphorically um so yeah i guess that that makes sense in a lot of ways let let, let us touch then on um pyramid head um what do you think about um what are your feelings on it as an enemy though i mean he's not really an enemy is he that's that's what i wanted to touch upon as well (laughs) but but what were your initial feelings on it uh, he's a giant guy. You first see him, you know, doing something horrible to a mannequin, and you have no idea what's happening. And he just follows you around, and he's got this horrible, long, heavy knife. And he's just naturally very scary looking um, and terrifying. And considering I played this in like 2008, 2009, when, you know, memes about Pyramid Head had already kind of pervaded the internet a little bit. I had a certain uh, image in my head. You like, you know, was, you have was that was that image shattered immediately after you played Silent Hill Two? Yeah, it took a couple of tries actually, because the first time you know you play it, and you're, there's so much to like metabolize about Silent Hill Two, but then like you get, but then you go down to the second time and you realize all the things that you thought Pyramid Head was doing, he's not doing. He's not. He doesn't actually like kill anybody, like really. Um, he doesn't act. He's not actually really a threat to you. You can't kill him, but he's because he kills himself. So it's very. It's he's a very. It's very strange, um, especially when you see that he's like kind of based on something that's supposed to be like a quote unquote guardian of the town. You know, when you find in like paintings around the town and stuff, um, and and when you realize that he's definitely more like 
James himself. He's supposed to be basically James as, you know, a manifestation of a monster. You almost, like, feel more sympathy for Pyramid Head than you do for James. <laughs> like, it's it's funny. The more I play Silent Hill 2, the less I care about James and the more I care about Pyramid Head. Like, like oh, Pyramid Head did nothing wrong. <laughs> he's... Like it's terrible, just terrible. But at the same time, you realize that he's not—he's not what you think. And it's very interesting how they played that because it's very subtle. It is very subtle. Uh, this was actually the video I was um, referring to um, just a minute ago. Like um, this was reported back in May. This was going around um, circles in May. Um, but there was a video going around, and um, YouTube put forward a very good case on why and why, although. It was fair to say everybody initially thought Pyramid Head was the enemy. Pyramid Head was actually helping you out. Or at least that was the theory that this video was going for. Um, so that, yeah, and that Pyramid Head was helping you out all along. While somehow Maria was just basically working against you somehow. That Not in the uh, more typical, I'm going to stop you, her, her, her trope. But more <laughs> of a, just... Something else, basically. Yeah, you can definitely see it that way in a lot of ways. Um, because Pyramid Head's almost trying to like enlighten James in a lot of ways. Like he's be trying to be like, because like the whole entire game, James is in denial about what he's done. And when confronted with Pyramid Head, you know what he does? He tries to kill it, or he hides from it first, and then he tries to kill it. Um, but then at the end, you know what? Pyramid Head does is he kills himself, essentially. Um, and it becomes way less like he was... Like, it seems way less like he was trying to hurt you than he was just trying to reach out to you in a lot of ways. Like, he does hurt you if you, you know... You can die from an, a Pyramid Head attack, but, you know, you can get his knife and then you can become Pyramid Head in a lot of ways um, if you choose to use it. Um, and then you have, like, Maria... Who, I mean, it's weird because there's the, um, I don't know if you call it a DLC because it's not really a DLC, but like the extra game, essentially, the extra game in Silent Hill 2 where you play as Maria, hmm. um, if that puts a different spin on things because she's, you realize she's sentient and she has her own little, she has her own thoughts and her own adventures before she even runs into James. Um, so it's a little different when you have that in your head. Um, versus if you just played Silent Hill 2 and you wondered the entire time if Maria is like this sentient being or if she's just a product of, you know, the town, you know, getting into James's head um, and trying to basically lure him and seduce him. Um, so I guess I can see how you can look at both those. Like we can look at Pyramid Head as like kind of a, companion and look at Maria as an antagonist, especially because I definitely in a lot of ways see Mary slash Maria as an antagonist, um, but not in the traditional way, obviously, because um, obviously the real antagonist is you. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that holds some weight. Um, I think I think Pyramid Head is definitely more than just a creepy guy with a long knife who you know, likes to do despicable things to other things. <laughs> um, I, was, I was going to bring up um, Born From a Wish as well, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll save that uh, for towards the end. But um, I, I, there was another aspect of that video as well that really caught my eye, so to speak. Um, like, 
obviously Pyramid Head is personification of you know James and that he is all the things that he wants like power, sex, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but towards the end of the video, like it was more of a it was mentioned that maybe Pyramid Head was James's guardian angel as well in a way, so to speak. Because, because, like, because James, it's because, like, like I said, James is so devoid of feelings. He's he's dead inside. Um, whereas, Pyramid Head is the manifestation of all these things that um, that James wants. And they hear hear the end of the video going, uh, maybe Pyramid Head is James' guardian angel. I was like, what? No, this was this was this was this was initially at first, but like, the more I thought about it, the more. Uh, I realized maybe that's true. <laughs> maybe that's really true. I think like just had, having the term guardian angel tagged onto Pyramid Head is strange just because you see Pyramid Head as one way and then putting a metaphorical halo on top is a little jarring. Um, but I think it, he, I don't think he goes so far as to be a guardian angel, to be honest, but I think in a lot of ways he is James's guardian. Um, whether he's trying to, you know, lead James in a certain direction, which I think he is. And, you know, he's kind of, I mean, if, and also if you think about it, like, like Pyramid Head doesn't have sentience of his own. He's a manifestation of James and Silent Hill kind of, you know, clashing and coming up with something that's the personification of James's, you know, frustrations about his own masculinity. Um, but I but I think in a lot of ways that Pyramid Head is... Yeah, I just like I struggle to say that he's an he's a guardian angel, but I also can't disagree with it mm. because he does because he never actively tries to fight against James like all the other monsters do. Like Maria is um, working against James in a lot of ways um, and preying on his frustrations in a way that's almost exploitive. While Pyramid Head isn't really doing anything, he's actually very passive. Um, he's a very passive character. Like he doesn't, he just kind of like, he doesn't really attack you. He just kind of stands there and he only really attacks you when you attack him first. Hmm. Um, like one of the first times you see him, he's just kind of staring at you from like behind a gate and you're just like, well, that's not okay. I'm just going to walk the other way. And then you like, and you see him as a monster, but he's, he's really, he's really not. He's definitely more of a character that, it's just, he is, it's like James looking in a mirror, to be honest. So it's not really like he's a guardian angel, but he's not, a, like, he's not a villain either. I mean, I mean, if you think about, like, Silent Hill 3, where, you know, the, the famous line, like, oh, they look like monsters to you. And, like, that always, like, rings in my head every time, because, it, it like, it's for Silent Hill 3, but it, you can think about it in a Silent Hill 2 context, in that you look at the lying figures and the mannequins, and the pyramid heads, and you're like, are these, like, what are these monsters really? There's more to it than just monsters that are attacking you. Mm. Like, as, besides pyramid head, like, um, there was obviously other enemy designs in the game, like like the, the bubble head nurses, and like, obviously there's a, you know, kind of disturbing scene with them with pyramid head uh, mm-hmm. in, in the game, but like, how, how did, as, as a horror aficionado, let's say, like, how, how would you feel if of the enemy design in the game. I mean, I think it works. Um, Like, obviously, there's something 
often problematic about the way the nurses are drawn. Um, but I think that's, that's all to a point. Um, there, there's obviously something there about like sexual sexualization of women and how James probably looks at other women during his time trying to care for Mary and how frustrated he is like sexually. And, you know, he feels emasculated. So I think it makes sense when you think about it in a, you know, when you think about all these, if you think about all these monsters are manifestations of James's head in from James's uh, feelings towards his, the wife, the death of his wife, then it all makes perfect sense. Like, I don't like, yeah, the, the nurses are very sexualized, but it's not for the benefit of the player. Even if some players, you know, treat it as such. <laughs> Born from a wish. You, you um, just brought it up then. Um, the side story scenario where the player takes control of Maria um, yes. Before they meet in Silent Hill, they've been uh, Maria and James. Um, like, uh, what did you think of that? It's weird. Uh, uh, it's definitely. It. I don't really understand like what the point of it is. To be honest, like, it definitely brings more depth to Maria, but then it just makes things a bit more confusing. Because um, as much as I love the world of Silent Hill that's portrayed in Silent Hill Two, like, which is a completely different Silent Hill than the ones in like one and three. Um, I think I also really like figuring out the way worlds work, um, and having, having, showing that Maria, you know, has these memories and had this whole experience before James and that there are other people in the town, so to speak, is very kind of, well, that contradicts everything that I thought was going on in the main game. Um, so it's just kind of very strange, um, I'm not really sure what to think of it, to be honest. I don't hate it, but it it kind of it makes me see Silent Hill two in a way that I'm not I'm not so comfortable with because if Maria is a is a is a human being that was just kind of used by Silent Hill for James, isn't that kind of like awful in a lot of ways that she was basically she had no agency whatsoever. Um, in what she was doing, um, so yeah, it's it's a, it it has a lot of really horrible connotations. I think Silent Hill Two is known for multiple endings. So, like, what ending did you get first time around? Uh, I think I think we got the suicide. En- I think I got the suicide ending first. Ah, uh, so that's the one where he draws, draw, uh, drives off the cliff, isn't it? Yeah, I think I got that one first because the thing the thing about I was doing all the things that you're not supposed to do especially when I was stuck. I was like, oh, you know, maybe this object will be helpful. Nope, it's not. But it turns out I was just looking at the knife over and over again, which which is one of the things that triggers the suicide ending. Another big core aspect of Silent Hill 2, and for more or less the, all the series through Downpour, up until Downpour, was Akira Yamaoka's soundtrack. Uh, yeah. That, that I, like... I I I can definitely re- respect and like that man's music. He really knows how to you know kind of bring out the best that series, in terms of music and sound sound design. I was, uh, yeah, it's just so good. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of it's like, yeah, it's like almost perfect. Like I don't I, I hate saying things are perfect because there's no such thing, but at the same time, you know, you have, you know, you're in the hotel. You get the three music boxes, and you put them together, and they play that like really haunting lullaby, and it, like it just like it puts you in a completely different place than you were before. 
or when you have you're talking with Maria in the jail cell and you have the um that track playing over the really famous um blank I'm totally blanking on the name right now but when you have the track yeah and you have like that playing over and you're just like like it's oh it like it hurt it hurts like it hurt it hurt like you have the game and it's so terrifying it's horrible but it's also really tragic and it's very sad and the music definitely doesn't let you forget that at all um and especially when you don't know the ending it gives you a very a sense of like sadness and dread about what's to come that uh, it just makes you want to keep playing and just makes the ending all the more ter- like just horrible it's it's yeah it's pinnacle of like and score in anything i think yeah i like like i said it's like what what he does with the work he puts into that series or he has put into that series is great with especially with Silent Hill too with female lore but quite frankly you'd be hard beat do not find a better score or music theme for a Silent Hill game than Silent Hill 3 yeah I, it's really good it's good in all of them to be well, honest yeah yeah it is it is like you can't really fault any one game for bad music choice no. yeah exactly it's all it all adds so much to the game and like the, what's so great about the Silent Hill games is that they're more than just just straight up horror games. They're they're very psychological in a lot of ways, and you have you go into each game, like you have you have a different emotion every time. Like every game you play has a different emotion tied to it. So, and I think they're all different in those ways, and they all kind of almost foreshadow what's to come towards the end, without you know make like making you feel really uncomfortable. Have you played any? Um, have you played Silent Hill Two through the HD collection at all, like on PS3 or Xbox 360? No, I, uh, I was, I was advised not to. That that is a good call. That is a very good call. <laughs> I was going to ask about uh, the other kind of um, smaller aspects of it because obviously Troy Baker comes in as James. Um, yeah. but that is perhaps a good call that's actually the only way I can play Silent Hill 2 now because I have a copy of the HD collection on Playstation 3 but at the same time I don't want to touch it I, yeah like I saw some footage from it and it it's a oh it's so bad <laughs> so I, I never really like listened too much at like the different you know voices they brought in or it was just like you know them like when you can basically see the edge of the screen in like when he's rowing in the lake and it's just like why would you do that <laughs> why would you put out a game that looks like that <laughs> exactly so, and i so i just can't i i refuse <laughs> that's a good call that's it's <laughs> it's more or less the reason why i'm staying away from it just even if there's the odd creeping temptation now and then just play Silent Hill 3 again exactly like I don't own Silent Hill 3 and I would love to play it again but mm. yeah I'm not buying that HG collection <laughs> fair cop fair cop uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's good advice don't don't buy the HD collection kids no no just stay as far away as you can from it as <laughs> best as you can um so what else do you like about Silent Hill 2 that we've not really touched upon tonight um I really like I really like um, some of the side stories. Like, I love Angela's uh, story, um, especially. Um, I like how it's there are almost there are all these other things going on while you're in it. So it's it definitely lessens the it's all about James. It's kind of feel you get from it. 
Um, but also I really like Angela's story because, I mean, it's so tragic and it's so sad. And, you know, you find out that, like, sh- you know, she's a victim of sexual abuse and, you know, abuse from her father. Um, and honestly, I think her monsters, the um, the abstract daddies are the most, are the creepiest looking. Um, the ones that are like, you know, they're like, uh, like, I don't know how to describe them. They look like somebody lean, like lying on top of someone else. Um, and it's, it's so creepy the more you look at it. And I love like the fight with her and like the room with all the, you know, just, uh, like I can't even like describe it properly how much I love Angela as a character. Um, and I love, you know, how, how she basically, over, how she overcomes or doesn't overcome, depending on how you look at it, you know, her past and her, like all her horrible traumatic experiences. Um, and it's interesting because she's put in this like AK, like, personal hell for something that for arson, but it's all very understandable. So you, so it really adds another dimension to how she feels about, you know, what she's done to her family. Like, despite the fact that her family has caused her so much pain, she still feels really guilty about it. Um, and it's not like, so it's not very, it's not very straight, like black and white kind of story. Like James, you know, he killed his wife. He's not, he's, that's terrible. But, and Eddie killed, he killed a dog, not nearly as terrible, but still very terrible. Um, but Angela's is definitely more ambiguous, which I really liked. And I liked how they add, they put that in there. What else do you not like about Silent Hill 2? Um, the, like I mentioned this before, but the controls are really terrible. Um, it's like, especially because it was one of the first games I played. I, I got stuck so many times. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. This combat is terrible. Like it's not it's not very fun to play from a you know a controller standpoint. Um until you get like really used to the controls and then that becomes easier. But yeah, the controls are a little messy. Um and that's basically how it's been for every Silent Hill game. They've all been kind of clunky in like how they move and how they, you know, show combat and so it's kinda it's a little distracting mm. in that way. Like, like so it's really bad in Silent Hill One, but in Silent Hill Two, where you're just like, like James keeps running into walls, he can't walk downstairs properly because he's not facing them exactly right. It's just, it's kind of silly. It's kind of silly and ridiculous. It's it's kind of disorienting in a way. Yeah, it's a little. Top three Silent Hill games. What what would you put in that list? Obviously, two would be at the top. I would say three and one. Um, two to the top. I really like three as the second one, and for third place. Um, I like one. I mean, I also kind of really like Shatter Memories too. I like didn't mention that before, but I've played that, and I I really like what it does with one, like how it retells it. Um, so I guess it's a tie between one and Shatter Memories. Honorable mentions, then. Go for it. Well, I love the Mass Effect series. Who doesn't? Um, exactly. I was going to say that's nothing surprising or controversial to say. Um, it's wonderful. <laughs> what, what what game would you say is perhaps your favorite of the series, then? I'd say two. Everyone says two. And, and right, yeah. rightfully so, too. Yeah, like, I like 
three, and but one was a little tough to get through. Yeah. It took me a few tries to get like my exact Shep so that I wouldn't die all the time. Um, but yeah, two also has just the best story and the best companions. And uh, my play, my first playthrough of two was tragic, but in a way that made it more interesting because I kept trying to romance. I was Fem Shep. And I kept trying to romance these characters. I couldn't romance as Femship. And it was so frustrating. <laughs> and I was so I was so upset about it. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> like like who were you trying to romance? I kept trying to romance Jack, but no, no, that's, that's that's not too bad. It's not, but at the same time she you can't romance her as Femship, which is no. stupid. Which is very, very stupid because she's canonically bisexual. Yep. <laughs> So that's why I was like, oh, I could totally try and romance you. And then after a while, I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't, nothing's happening. Uh-oh. <laughs> I screwed up. <laughs> I think, um, for me, like, my, I, I played as Femme Shep as well. And, I, and my Femme Shep was bisexual as well. Um, but I didn't really try anything on one. But for two, I I was with Chambers. And then for three, oh, God, I'm blanking on her name. But, like... Who was who, who? Who was your assistant in free guy? I can't remember. Uh, I'm totally blanking too. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 that's basically who I had in free because you know my my friendship likes to play the field basically. Uh-huh. Um, but I like whenever anyone compares between, let's say whoever was in free and uh, chambers in two hours. Chambers, man. Oh, chambers. <laughs> yeah, but in the end, it turned out that, you know, Liara's my space wife forever because I romanced her in one and then I ended up romancing her in three. Um, and Garrus is my space bro because we're best friends. And I totally support him and Tali as a couple. Thumbs up. She's a wingman. My femme chef's a wingman. <laughs> which which kind of makes Citadel and Mass Effect 3 uh, very interesting as well. It's a, it's a little interesting. With um, like, uh, like I never had. Um, I think Tally died in two for me. Yeah, she did. She did die for me in two, so I didn't really uh-huh. prepare them together. So I, but there was. I think it was Garrison was, and he's in the bar, and you have to try and uh, set him up with someone. Uh, <laughs> and it was hilarious. I mean, like Citadel's basically a, a, a hilarious but emotional caricature of a piece of DLC. I love it. Oh, it is, but I, I love it so much. And I, I just love making Garrus feel really embarrassed in general. Like um, making, like I know you're supposed to like treat him good, well, but I'm like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna let you win. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a bunch of. Going back to my love of horror as a genre, I re- there's a lot of like really interesting free-to-play, freeware horror games that I love. I love them so much. Um, I love like uh, SCP Containment Breach, you know, even though it's such a simple game with you know very simple graphics, it's so terrifying. In it's the one. For and if, if you or anybody in the audience doesn't know, it's the one where um, you have that statue that can that stays still when you're looking at it, and then if you blink or you're not looking at it, it can kill you. Very much like the the Weeping Angels and Doctor Who, um, but it, it's so nerve wracking. It does horror so well because the entire time you have no idea what's going to happen, and you're just like. I've been like I've had been playing on my computer, and then something happens, and I just throw my mouse, 
off my desk because it's just it, there's so it really gets you in a state of absolute fear and terror in a lot of in a way that doesn't feel cheap, which is really important because I definitely feel that a lot of times horror relies on certain tropes and it kind of cheapens the scares a lot. Like it's like, Oh, well, that, well of course that was going to scare me. It was a shitty, terrible jump scare, but you know, SCP Continuum Breach really deserves it and really earns it's, you know, it's, it's just how scary. Oh, it's so scary. Um, and it's free, which is great because I'm poor and I love free games because I can play them and then share them with other people and then they will play them because they are free. Um, another game I really, really like is Off, which is another um, free-to-play um, game. And it's, it's, it's horror in a lot of ways, but it's also just kind of, kind of a psychological RPG in a, a lot of ways, too. Um, yeah, and it kind of became like a viral hit for a while, which is how I found out about it. Um, but it, it's very interesting. It's very, like I, I said before, how I described the term Silent Hill-esque. It's very Silent Hill-esque in a lot of ways. Um, in that it's about, you know, like kind of like crime and punishment and morality. And it's such a simple, simple game, but so creative. Um, and that's another one. Um, trying to think. What else is there? I'd say those two. Top three games ever. What would you go for? Three games ever. I mean, Silent Hill 2 for one. Okay, obviously. Obviously. Um, crap. I, yeah, I have no, I, I have no idea. Um, I, ooh, um, I'd say, I'd say Walk to the Moon would be, not Walk to the Moon. To the Moon. That's it. I was thinking of the band Walk to the Moon. <laughs> to the Moon, I really like. It made me cry, and I've played it a billion times, and it's wonderful. And then I guess my my third would probably be Borderlands Two. Ah, um, it's just it's so much fun, and it actually and it does character really well. Um, yeah, you can pl- and you can just play it forever essentially, because um, so many things to explore, and it's so fun, and you can play with so many other people. Oh, and I guess I I should also say Portal. Yes. Portal is amazing. Portal and Portal 2, side by side. Ah. Would you would you be able to choose one of them as your favorite, let's say? He says kind of manically. <laughs> you say that manically because it's terrible and hard. Um, I would say 2 only because you go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, it, it has that edge. <laughs> go to the moon and then have a, the game to the moon in, in your uh, top 3. Well done. I try (laughs) well firstly I run a very small quarterly magazine it's called Postmodern Mag Um, we publish work by creators and artists and anybody else who has had a creative experience and wants to talk about it. Um, and you can find that at postmodernmag.com. Um, and we have a Patreon that you can donate to if you're interested in seeing um, artist reflections and, you know, writing on the creative process. Um, and that's at patreon.com slash postmodernmag. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my 
handle is Veloci Raptor, which is my crowning achievement. <laughs> coming up with this, coming up with that, um, and I freelance all around the web, and you can find my writing at my, on my portfolio, which is carlyveloci.wordpress.com. <laughs> Silent Hill 2 is known for multiple endings. So, like, what ending did you get first time around? Uh, I think... I think we got the suicide... I think I got the suicide ending first. Ah, uh. so that's the one where he draws, draw, uh, drives off the cliff, isn't it? Yeah. Like, like no way at all were you trying to get the dog ending? I, well, you can't get the dog ending on the first one through, I think. Ah, okay. Yeah, I think, I think you can only get it on after you've finished it once. Um, same with like the UFO ending, which you can only get after you played it once, which makes perfect sense because why would you be playing a horror game with like saying you have no knowledge of it whatsoever, and then all of a sudden you find out that a dog was behind it the entire time? Well, that, and would, that would be a twist and a half. It would. It would be a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> so- Of course, I've seen it. It's wonderful in every way. It's the best ending in any game ever. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not appropriate for a first Silent Hill playthrough. No, 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 definitely not. But <laughs> anything after that is fair game. Exactly. Like, like when, like when you're playing Sun Hill Three, and then you get like magical girl Heather as a costume. Like it's stupid, but obviously you're playing it a second time, so it's okay. <laughs> for listening to my favourite game next week Tom Francis on Deus Ex until next week bye bye